Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. You're listening to the Medical School HQ podcast online at medicalschoolhq.net, session number five. Hello and welcome back to another excellent session here at the Medical School HQ Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Gray, and we are the podcast about medical school. From the pre-med process through residency, we hope to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. For today's session, I have an excellent guest on to share his knowledge of the medical school process, including his expertise with the non-traditional student. Richard Levy is the executive director of the National Society for Non-Traditional Pre-Medical and Medical Students. He is also the publisher of oldpremeds.org, which is the main website for the society. I started the interview with Rich asking him about the beginnings of Old Pre-Meds. It was a group that was founded about 1977, I'm sorry, 1997, excuse me, by uh, an email list of six people. Uh, The story goes from the founders that they were all online or in the forums for a Princeton review class for MCAT and were getting harassed by the younger students. They set up a separate forum for non-traditional students. It filled up so quickly they decided to set up their own listserv. So in 1997, they had six people. And now in 2013, we've had about 9,000 people register on the website over the years we've been around. We're averaging about 25,000 unique visitors a month, viewing over three quarters of a million pages. And uh, I think that growth in itself shows you as non-traditional students going into medicine is growing. That uh, that's a lot of page views and a lot of visitors. It, do you have do you have trends from like a year ago? If it's increasing year over year, I apps I do. I'm getting a little lower now. Um, we're getting about thirty percent year to year. When we started tracking this, say about two thousand seven, we were getting four thousand people a month, five thousand people a month. Um, and we just started pushing a little bit, becoming a little bit more organized than how we actually did it. And so, uh, I do follow them all the time and we peak when we have our yearly conference and it sort of drops off over the summer and then it starts building up as the semester begins again. So we, we go through these cycles, but as equivalent to retail month to month over year to year, we increase 30, 
And do you find that the people searching you or finding your website, are they typically non-traditional students? Are they kind of any student and your, your website just has valuable data for everybody? Uh, it's mostly non-traditional students. Um, concurrent with their page view, we find we get about a million point two search hits a month. Wow. And if the guide for our forums or anything, uh, probably the, the most common of the first two postings that a new person who found the site and wants to post will put, God, I'm so glad I thankful I found you. <laughs> or um, I really have always want to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, we find many people who, older students, whatever reason they didn't finish school, a few years out of school, etc., seem to think that it's too late to go to medicine, they're too old, and they have no support, no mechanism, and they find us. It's almost like they've, they've found a group of people, someone who finally believes in what they want to do. We haven't defined what a non-traditional student uh-huh. is. Is that, is that what a non-traditional student would be? Somebody a little bit older in life? Tends to be someone who's older. That's the most common perception. But there's sort of two ways to think about it, or I should say three. One, there's no common definition of what non-traditional is. Um, right now, if we were to define traditional as the classic 18 to 22 year old, most college students wouldn't fit that either. The average college student age is now 25. Um, but we find that it's students, usually sort of three groups of students. Those who have recently finished college and have not finished the pre-medical requirements um, and decided they want to go to medicine a few years down the road. Uh, Second are what I call, I call those near grads. These are my terms, not anything used in the literature. Uh, I call medium grads those who've been, say, out of school for, oh, I don't know, eight years or more, and uh, often decide they want to go back into medicine. Uh, Then I get the far grads who have been out of school for 10 years plus, maybe even 15, Often these are medical professionals on capacity who've decided they want to do more and they want to go back. And so it's really three distinct groups of people. Um, We're finding that the growth in non-traditional students is recognized overall in academia. Perhaps uh, 10, 20 years ago, there were very few formal post-baccalaureate pre-medical programs. Now they're about 125. So there are many students who get out of college who decide they want to go back. And most of these programs are for those who've gone gone to college, done well to okay, and now want to go to medical school. So it really goes toward that population of those recently out of college. And I think that old pre-meds, while we deal with a lot of those, we also tend to the people who've been out of college for some time or a long time. Those tend to be the more active, interested people. Um... I think the reason for that is because of these post-baccalaureate pre-medical programs, there's sort of a formal support structure now for those near college graduates. There's a formal structure for them to go to medical school through post-baccalaureate programs, where again, with the older students, it's really not as formal and structured yet. So they rely a lot on us. And we are by far the largest organization solely dedicated to non-traditional pre-medical students. That's awesome. I I think... I I forget how I found you guys, but I think looking back on my own path to medical school, I might have been considered a non-traditional student myself, having applied during the normal time frame, didn't get into medical school the first time, and then took three years off and worked in home 
uh, construction for a little while and managed a gym using my exercise physiology degree. I think uh, it, it it might be very similar to my to my path. It it probably is. Um, I haven't actually looked at the data. I should. Uh, wondering how many students actually would be considered out of the very traditional. I wonder. I wonder what the percentage of students who have just graduated college, or rather, I should say, not have graduated college yet, they're in their junior year, right, and they're now applying. Yeah. Uh, compared to else, that would be interesting. Yeah. the The average age from the AAMC data is still twenty three, so it's it's probably the majority are still very traditional go through college 18 to 22 and then uh, get out and, and go to medical school. Probably. And in many ways, I feel sorry for most of those students who often in college only know about getting into medical school and don't know about the rest of the hill to become a full-time practicing physician. I, they, I, I would agree with you. I, having taken time off myself, I, I've lived life. I've seen what what is outside of medicine, what is outside of school. And I think that's a a necessary part of becoming a uh, a good practitioner because you know your patients a little bit better because you understand their work life and their their struggles. I also think it has to do with people who don't know what goes on in medicine. I think many students in college know their coursework, know the MCAT, might know a little bit of volunteering in a hospital, but don't understand the amount of exams that go on through medical school, the USMLE boards, the idea of picking a residency, fellowships, all those things that impact, I think very few students have a good grasp on. One of the things that impressed me with this organization at their very first conference was they went end to end. We are not just pre-medical students, we deal with med students and residents and now attending physicians. So we can give students a good idea of the entire length of training Uh, Part of my philosophy in running this organization is to make sure that people get into there with their eyes wide open so they know exactly what they're getting into when they decide, I want to be a doctor, what it really means and what kind of dedication it's going to take. And I I think that's valuable for the interview trail as well in your applications because medical schools want to make sure that you you know what the struggles are going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. What kind of support, you just talked about residents and, and physicians uh, what, or attendings, what kind of supporter is old pre-meds offering those, that, that age group? Well, what I'm seeing, and I, I tend, being where I stand in academic, I tend to look at the most of pre-meds, but for the medical students and residents, we often get questions concerning family life. They want to know because older students tend to already have a family, uh, like a younger student. They'd like to know, and they have no idea of how to pick a residency, how to prepare for a residency, what would be a good choice, where, why. Um, I'm finding for some of the attendings, I've seen questions lately on insurance. Uh, ironically, one of my business backgrounds helps me with some of the attendings and tax questions who don't realize certain things about um, loan repayment, uh, insurance, setting up a business, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, in fact, how I got involved with Old Meds was more my business background than my medical interests. Okay. And you were once pre-med, if I'm not I, mistaken. I was twice pre-med. Um, I was originally an undergraduate uh, many years ago at a large state school, and I wanted to be pre-medical. I had many other interests, had a double major, et cetera. And after years of doing 
far too much college work, I decided I didn't want to go to medical school. I said, I don't want to spend four more years in school. Forget it. No way. Sort of bounced around a little bit, uh, not going through all the details. I wound up in computers and technology at the beginning of the PC revolution and have done that for many years, uh, mostly in a large financial institution. Some years ago, I had an occasion of fortune to go to the emergency room. And while I was stuck there for overnight, um, I noticing people like the nurse practitioner who was working me up. There was a night nurse who had been a plumbing, a driving a plumbing truck for 10 years, a few other things. And I, I, I point out that I was an EMT and paramedic and ER tech in my college days. I worked through college in the hospital emergency room as an ER tech. So I had a lot of background, certainly emergency medicine. Well, I, I came back from this uh, Friday afternoon uh, ER visit and to my job Monday morning, which is being a project manager in technology, it's basically being a glorified clerk. And it suddenly struck me that, gee, I'd like to be working back in the hospital again. And two days I worked up a project plan and I found old pre-meds. This was in October of 2002. Um, I went to their conference. I got involved working with the group. I redid an entire post back, um, uh, do-it-yourself, a DIY of 60 credits. Um, but in the end, for many reasons, uh, partly for being older, partly having a bad back, relationships, et cetera, I decided not to go on to medical school, but I was so involved in the organization, I thought it was worthwhile to keep this organization, keep going with it. And that's how I became where I am. Very cool. So so you understand the struggles of the old pre-med I understand the mindset that they have to get into in order to be successful. Okay. Um, I find that many students, they get that dream and that idea and don't know what to do with it. They don't even know. We get, often get questions. I don't know where to start. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's the biggest problem is it, it's really not that they don't have the motivation. It's, it, it's number one, they, they probably don't even know they can do it. It's even worse than not only they, they, they don't know they can do it, many students are actively discouraged. Um, I found, you know, parents, spouses will say it's a long, very long, a difficult training, which it is. It's very expensive, which it is. Doctors have a lot more trouble in actually running a business now than they did, say, 20 or 30 years ago with managed care. And perhaps the worst um, negative comments come from current medical practitioners. Um, often I, uh, old pre-med members will come on and say, you know, they asked their family practice doc what they think about it. And they're just said, oh, you should never go into medicine. It's a horrible business to be in, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, one of my rules for students is see what your doctor says second, not what he says first. You know, what would be the hardest thing about going to med school is being older, et cetera. Um, in fact, on one of the few occasions where I was at a conference and had the opportunity to ask the Surgeon General of the United States a question from the floor, that was, in fact, my question. How can we get family practitioners and general practitioners becoming more of a uh, positive promoter for their discipline than becoming a negative promoter, as it seems to be? And she was somewhat baffled at that question because she had no answer to it. Yeah. Um, Stop cutting Medicare. <laughs> well, lots of things that could be done, um, but we, you know, unfortunately, not an answer here. I can deal only with the academic piece at this point. Yeah. Um, what's What's the oldest person you've seen on on the website that that has actually gone back into school? 
Oh, uh, at 55 at least. Wow. Um, we have, I, I, my, in my varied academic career prior to going in computers or actually learned about them, I earned a master's in social research. So I have a lot of demographic um, knowledge. So I look at the data and there are reams of data concerning medical applicants, both for MD and DO, as well as residency. And so I look at it because people have the questions, they have numbers. Often one of the things I pride on our website is to have accurate, verifiable information or at least information. If it's not verified and accurate, put down that it's not. This is my opinion, et cetera. Yeah. But anyway, um, a couple of years ago, I did looked at the 2010 data for the AMC. That's the uh, the MD organization. And there were approximately, there were 186 uh, matriculants that are people who started medical school um, who were probably 38 years of of age or older, that is the one, the top 1%. Um, and that would be roughly explained for somewhere between four and 500 people a year over 38 apply to medical school. That's what the gross data suggested. That probably isn't quite accurate. Um, I found that there was a large split. You're going to find people who are really in their early thirties in that group. And you find an outlying section of much older people who also get accepted. Um, I'd actually like to look at the number data. I've talked to the AMC about looking at it sometime. I've just not had the time and opportunity to do so. The data is readily available to do so. Now, that's that's just the the, the allopathic data. Correct. That is solely allopathic. Um, when, when I look at your website and uh, doing all my own research for for my website, it seems like the majority of the non-traditional students talk about osteopathic more than allopathic. Well, I think there are three reasons for that. First of all, we get a lot of support from the osteopathic schools. Um, osteopathy still has the, quote, stigma of somehow not being a full doctor. And the osteopathic schools have long had l recruiting um, functions within their admissions department. They actively go out and recruit, where most allopathic schools do not. MD schools think they get plenty of applications. We have little reason to recruit. They really don't do a lot of it. The second reason is osteopathic schools tend to have slightly lower uh, standards, um, slightly lower GPA, slightly lower MCATs for the average matriculating student. Um, and the other reason is a mechanical reason for applications. In the allopathic world, the MD, Every college course you ever took in your life will be counted towards your GPA. If you took a college course in your senior year in high school for basket weaving and you decided not to finish it, that grade will count in your GPA for medical school 20 years later. The osteopathic school allows grade replacement for the latest class you've taken. So if you were, say, a sort of so-so mediocre pre-med and original college degree, and you've got a C in organic chemistry, you can now improve that grade. So it gives those people who didn't do well the first time in college, often people are young, immature, didn't really know what they wanted to do, gives them a chance to improve their grade point average and get into medical school. Hence, osteopathy tends to be a path for them. I would estimate probably a good 50% of the people who do go through old pre-meds wind up going to DO school as opposed to MD school. Okay. Now, the, the grade replacement, that's a osteopathic-wide 
um, correct thing. It's it's not a school by school. No, uh, both the MD and the DO have associations for the member colleges that run application services. So primary applications for either MD or DO school go through a centralized service with centralized standards, centralized GPA calculations, etc. Um, by the way, one other reason why osteopath does attract people, there's a slight difference in how GPAs are calculated between MD and DO. In MD, your, G, your science GPA is biology, chemistry, math, physics, BCMP. That's it. All the computer science doesn't count. All the geology doesn't count. Anything other than those four sciences do not count toward your science GPA. In the osteopathic, your science GPA is any science you have taken, and it does not include math. Uh, I find that calculus tends to be a course that many people cringe over from their initial college days. So it does give people uh, a different angle. And again, older students who may have had, as I like to say, grade baggage from their original college degrees find it a little easier to get through. So geology, astrology, those are counted in the osteopathic. Uh, astronomy. I wouldn't say astrology. <laughs> okay. Astronomy. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Um, and all these, by the way, one thing I do find for people who are listening is many students do apply, do not read the, even the application packets that you can get from either organization. They're free and they give you very detailed information of what counts and where. Um, so I, I suggest to anyone who is thinking about applying to medical school, start there, look at the application packets that exist on either one of these websites for the AMC or the AACOM, which is the osteopathic organization. Okay. And you will see what they list, what courses count, how to calculate, et cetera. Okay. And I'll, I'll have links to all those in the show notes so that people can easily find that. And that can be found at medicalschoolhq.net slash session five. Um, so the non-traditional student, what kind of unique challenges would they have compared to a, a traditional student? Well, several things come to mind. Uh, one, there tends to be less structured uh, academic support. That is advising support. Um, many schools are set up for a full-time student who goes into daytime who is first time taking classes. Many pre-medical advisors, pre-health advisors tend to be overwhelmed, have a lot of work to do. Often older students may have to work. They only go to school part-time. They may go to school in the evening, and they don't have access to that formal academic structure. The second piece is the informal network. I think many student, traditional students, regular students, know from their friends they're in the same chemistry class, they're in the same organic chemistry class, there's a group of, you know, your cohort of pre-medical students, each of you sort of giving a knowledge and how the process works. For non-traditional students, often doing this on their own, they don't have that informal network either. That's a big piece where OPM comes in, old pre-meds. Um, the other thing, again, is not knowing the process, not knowing where to start, not knowing what to take, not knowing how to do it. It's often overwhelming. Um, and I actually came out with a list of uh, rules, which I can certainly link to you on our site, a uh, summary of the rules for non-traditional students to follow. Uh, one of which I find is they often have been out of school for so long, they have to learn how to be students again. Many people say they'll get the idea, well, I want to be a doctor. 
oh no, I'm very old, I have to do everything now. And they jump in with both feet, out knowing what to do. And they wind up not doing well, getting overwhelmed, etc. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's one thing. Having taken three years off of school myself, coming back into medical school, I, I struggled with that. Oh, I, 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 one of the things I tell people, I'm a big believer in people actually taking time to go through a post-bac because not only do they have to learn the material, they have to learn the skills to be a student, note-taking, exam-taking, etc., they also have to know if doing all this work is really for them. It's not just to prove to the medical school that you want to go to medical school, but prove to yourself you want to go. And all those skills are absolutely necessary. I've often told people that medical school is basically a series of exams occasionally punctuated by lectures. And you're going to be taking notes, taking exam, taking notes, taking exam, and it's going to be, as they say, the proverbial fire hose. Um, if for those students who really wonder what it's like, there's a great video on the web uh, medical school is like eating five pancakes a day. I will let your or your listeners uh, find that one for themselves. It's a good analogy of how much work they're going to have to do and how important it is to be a good student. A certain kind of pancake or just plain pancakes? Well, just plain pancakes, but five every day. <laughs> and if you miss one day, then you got ten. Ouch. And yes. And of course, when you finally get to the exam, it's basically buckets and regurgitation. Yeah. So, uh, but again, it's interesting. It was, it was produced by a medical school, this video, or by the students. Okay. Quite interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that link there, too. And I, I have the uh, your rules, the 10 things every non-traditional pre-med should know. I'll, oh, I'll link to that as well. Um, the other thing that I think is important for non-traditional students, again, often non-traditional students have had mediocre original undergraduate grades. Often they go to post-bac. Often they'll do it themselves. But the other important number in getting into medical school, of course, is the MCAT. Yeah. Um, it is the one place that students can show how they compare to the current cohort of medical applicants. Um, and many people fear the MCAT. And one of my rules is the MCAT is your friend. It truly is. Um, spend the time, the money, assume the MCAT is equal to an entire semester worth of coursework. By the way, there, there's been a, a study, I don't know if they're still continuing it, but for about five years, Kaplan, uh, one of the biggest MCAT uh, course providers, and certainly perhaps not the most unbiased of surveyors, did do a survey every year of all the medical school admissions offices. And usually, this is the MD schools. And usually about two-thirds would, apply, would uh, reply to this. And always, for the five years I read the report, about... 75% of the schools said that GPA is the first or second factor they consider, and 75% said that MCAT is the first or second factor they consider. So MCAT and GPA, by far, are most important. Yeah. it's I, I like to call the MCAT the great equalizer. Absolutely. Everybody, it seems, everybody is is worried about the name of their undergraduate school they go to and uh, such small, small things that they worry about when... What it comes down to, the, the weed-out factor is GPA and MCAT, and, and you can do well on both of those no matter where you go. Uh, one of my rules, I, I do, in addition to doing advising on the site, I do private advising as well. And one of the rules I often tell students in both cases is go to the best institution that you can do well in. <laughs> that's that's straight out of, straight, exactly what I say as well. Uh, it, it's true. I, I, I remember arguing with someone recently on one of the other websites 
who was in a uh, New York State, a, a medium New York State college, was doing quite well, had access to professors, you know, small school, but he had a chance to go to Cornell. And maybe he, to his own admission, said, well, I can get a three at where I am, but I can get a three five at Cornell. Mm. Why? Why would you do it? You're, you're taking more money to cost. You have more cutthroat competition. You have less chance to interact on a personal basis with professors. There's no reason for it. Yeah. You'll do much better in going to a local school. There is, for some schools, there there certainly is a weight factor institution, but it is minor in comparison to GPA and MCAT. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad somebody agrees with me. <laughs> um, one of the, uh, I want to go back real quick. You, you had mentioned one of the challenges of the non-traditional student is the fact that a lot of them have day jobs. Correct. And they have to find time to squeeze classes into their schedule. And what what I see a lot is the question about community college classes. Do you, do you have any insight no. into that? Absolutely. Um, it, it is, there is no doubt that community college classes um, will be not considered as rigorous as a four-year school. That is absolute fact. Those are by the admissions committees. Okay. However, when people, especially non-traditional students, have to go to all uh, preparing for it, I often give the opposite, which is, which is better, community college classes or no classes. You have to fit with the logistics of life that you have. If you try to do too much, you're going to fail at it. You have to fit those logistics. And those logistics could include um, traveling when the core classes are offered, the cost of the classes. So, again, it goes back to what can you do well in? Will a community college not – I don't consider it so much a negative factor or I'll say a minor negative. It just won't be as much as a positive from a four-year school. Now, one of my rules always goes to it, it also depends. It depends on your situation that you have. If you were a, say, a non-science major in a four-year school and did well, you then go to community college several years later and do your prerequisites and do well. You maybe take a few upper-level classes four-year school and do well, and you take the MCAT and do well. It will not be much of an impact to you. However, if you were a hardcore science major in your first attempt at school and you were a mediocre student who didn't graduate well, and then you go back to do community college classes, I think that would put you in a much worse position. So one of the important things about non-traditional, it implies we're all atypical, unique. So everyone has to look at their situation for what the school they need, as well as the logistics of life they're living and decide what is the best path they can take. So there is no one rule that fits all per se. That is probably the biggest difference between traditional and non-traditional applicants. They're definitely not cookie cutter here. With your rule, it depends. Does, do community college credits, does every medical school accept them? No. There are, um, for, people should know, and the whole students should know, realize what schools will accept and what they don't. Um, And the for the MD schools, two ways to do that. The, the Certainly the simple and efficient way is for the MD schools, there is a publication every year, uh, Medical Student Admissions Requirements, MSAR. Every student considering medical school should look at it. It gives you a two-page summary of the schools, and I believe, and I, I'll have to verify this, that on those pages it will say whether it accepts community college credits or not. Some schools will say we do not accept it. 
some schools will say something aligns that I remember reading on one website, uh, if a student has a choice between a uh, at a four year school and a community college, they said they should go for the more rigorous course. That was the way it was worded. Um, some schools do not say anything about it. Um, but, you know, you should look at the school and decide what goes on. Um, and just because it's written in stone, supposedly, I, I, not necessarily written in stone, check the school's website and certainly write and call the school. Don't feel shy about writing an email, a professional short email that concisely says what you're asking to an admissions office and then follow up with a very professional phone call. Um, you may find that they'll say, well, we uh, we normally won't accept the we don't look at community college credits, but you have a long background. If you take a few advanced classes, it could work. Some schools are very strict. Some may not be. But I say that all with a caveat as well. The medical school admissions process is a process of weeding people out. They will look for a reason to push somebody out because they get four or five thousand applicants for 160 seats at any particular MD school. Yeah, um, I, I'm I, I cannot say off the top of my head. But by the way, the DO schools, there's also a uh, an equivalent book we call the College Information Book, but it's free on the AACOM site. Um, I believe most DO schools are more likely to accept community college credits without much argument. Okay, the the DO book is free. I I know the 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 MSAR MSAR is you have to pay for. Oh yes, they they yes the M <laughs> there there is certainly a business model that I envy with the AMC. <laughs> yes, it's not cheap to go to medical school. No, apply uh, <laughs> to medical school. Yes. So speaking of, an aside to this, is students who are thinking of that. And in addition to the fees of just getting information and getting applications in, the fees for interviews, fee for interview, they ask, yes, you may have to fly someplace and get a hotel. Mm. And you have to do that a couple of times. Hopefully. So, yes. <laughs> By yeah. the way, I, I, I'm just looking, uh, I know a question you had before about the oldest people have gone to medical school. Um, I read a uh, news release, or rather a news article about an older student who graduated med school in there referring to an AMC statement that um, about a dozen students per year over 50 matriculate into medical school. So that's MD. I know from the DO data, that's probably another uh, eight to 12 as well. So in any given year, there's probably 20 or plus people in the country who start medical school who are over the age of 50. That's, see in my, in my mind, and tell me if I'm wrong, depending on where you are in life, and, and you may have always wanted to be a doctor, but at some point you have to think logically, think financially, and go, is it financially responsible for me to stop working for four years and accumulate $100,000, $150,000, worth of debt, come out and work for three, four, five years? seven years making forty five to fifty thousand dollars a year and then actually start working start making money and paying that back do do you have you found anybody that comes out of this process older in life and goes you know what it financially it was a, a big mistake hmm um I have not actually spoken to anyone who comes out with that statement uh directly although I've certainly spoken to those who've gone through the whole process and look back and wonder, was it really worth it overall to family, to their own time, to their own effort? Um, 
my philosophy on that is not so much in uh, telling people whether it be financially viable or not, but rather making sure that all the issues that they may impact are raised and they've thought about it. I believe it's their decision to make. Um, by the way, just to add to this whole mix, on the one of the med school sites in New York, the SUNY Upstate Medical School, in their non-traditional frequently asked questions, has a statement that they have accepted a 63-year-old student. Wow. So, I mean, people are out there. I mean, many people have their own motivations for why they want to do it. Um, I found one of the most interesting I found was someone who came to one of our conferences in D.C. was a well-known NIH researcher in pediatric genetics who, in fact, was one of the few people in the country who was board certified in medical genetics who was not a physician, who at 55 after all that, after being at running labs and being very well known, still wanted to get his MD. It was still his desire. So, I mean, many there are people who have many, many motivations, and I don't, I don't think it's my place, uh, or at least the philosophy of the way I try to have the organization run, as to make those decisions for them as much as make sure they thought about it and give them whatever support and, and, and here's the pathways that may be best. There are other people who've gone similar pathways. Here are the challenges and here's the things you have to consider. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's the important part. The, the The important piece of the puzzle is just making sure they've thought about it. Yes, and that's what I find many people don't. Um, th this goes back to where we sort of started is many of the younger students, traditional students who know nothing but getting good grade in the MCAT and getting into medical school have no idea what the process is after that, what it is to actually become a doctor. And I've certainly met um, several 30-year-old residents medical residents who are bitter at a profession they have yet to practice a day independently at. Um, they're still driving the same car they drove as a sophomore in college. Um, they see their friends who went to business school or law school driving a BMW. They've been working their butts off for years and hours in studying. They have not had a normal relationship. Their idea of a healthy meal is a coffee without sugar in it. Uh, their idea of a vegetable is the pickle you might find in McDonald's hamburger. And they just dislike it. And they've yet to practice profession. Yeah. So um, it, it, it's certainly an issue for many, for many people that they don't know what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. It's, I, I think residency has a tendency to do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that's a conversation for a different day. Um, let me finish off with the one, the one thing that you want to tell non-traditional students or even traditional students, the, the one thing that they seem to always be missing when they come to your site or, or, or the biggest question they always have, can you answer that for them now? Well, I, I'm going to have to answer that in two parts. The one thing I think all students come with is a lack of understanding the process, whether it's the application process, whether the very specific mechanics of it, or the process to becoming physician full. But when it comes to traditional versus non-traditional, what I've seen in more in my private advising practice than I do on the website, per se, is traditional students who have been at the top of their class in some good college often sound very arrogant, very um, unfeeling. Uh, when I read their essays, I can see why medical admissions committee people often go, oh, I wouldn't let this guy in. Where I find the uh, non-traditional students 
are not typically like that. They have much more life experience and it shows up in their applications. But for the non-traditionals, the biggest thing I would say to them, it is possible. Do not feel you're alone. Do not feel that you cannot do it. Do not take the naysayers. Find out what you can. We'll give you the idea for what the process is, what you need to do, and then you can make make the decision for yourself if you are up to the challenges. Great advice. Where can people listening find you or find your site? Oh, we are at www.oldpremeds.org. If you put old premeds in Google, you will find us. We are a free site and everyone is more than welcome. Well, folks, that was Richard Levy. I hope you got some great information from the interview with him. He's a great guy. The website and the community over at oldpremeds.org is amazing. You can go check it out at oldpremeds.org. All the links and everything that we've talked about will be in the show notes, so you can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash session five. I hope you got some great information today and hope to talk to you real soon.